0: the middle of the afternoon and an ambulance has just arrived at the hospital's emergency room. The paramedics rush their patient into the hospital and through the doors, where they discover a room full of patients, nurses, and doctors. A shaking young man is talking to a doctor about medication. A young child with a fever is attended to by a nurse. And a senior citizen talks to a caring administrator about some pains she's feeling. It's managed chaos. In another part of the hospital, a young woman is inside an MRI machine. Her brain is being tested for a possible disease. What puts her at ease is knowing that this hospital has the most advanced equipment available. If she is suffering from something, the technicians there will be able to identify it immediately and provide guidance. In another wing, an army soldier is learning to walk with his new prosthetic limbs. He's put through his paces by the physiotherapist as the cutting-edge sensors attached to the young man track every inch of movement to ensure he will be able to walk and to continue serving his country. And elsewhere, a mother gives birth to a healthy baby girl. The nurses quickly wrap the baby up and present her to the mother. The father, who just arrived from overseas, can't stop smiling. As the baby cries out, the young couple burst into tears of joy, knowing that they'll remember this moment forever. Scenes like this play out at hospitals across the United States and overseas every minute of every single day. But what makes this location special is that it's a military hospital overseen by the Defense Health Agency. There are over 700 of these around the world, where 140,000 civilians and military personnel provide care for over 9.6 million service members, retirees, and their families. The Defense Health Agency was established in 2013, and in the 11 years since, it has become a global leader in the healthcare industry. And leading it is Lieutenant General Talita Crosland. It's recently appointed director. A 31-year Army veteran, doctor, and mother decided at the tender young age of five years old that she wanted to become a physician, and her current role is the culmination of a career of exceptional service to patients and her country. In today's episode, our hosts sit down with Lieutenant General Crosland to discuss her medical career, the difference between civilian and Army medicine, and to critique the poetry she wrote when she was five. I'm Carrie varou and this is Army Matters.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Lieutenant General Child Leslie Smith. And I'm here today with my best buddy, the 15th Sergeant Major Army. Hey, 15th, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing all
2: right. I'm doing good. I'm doing better now that I get to spend a little bit of time with you, Les. Oh. Uh, you know how often the phone rings where people call and offer me money to take my job just so they could be with you? Okay, Dan, it's, it's getting too. Well, you're supposed to say you're supposed to say how often?
1: How often, Dan? N-
2: it never rings. But, Ex- so, exactly. That's too. right. But I, I am. I Dan have to Dan walk
1: to. into your jokes because just so you feel better.
2: <laughs> I know. Yeah. Well, I know they're terrible. It's all good. Now, Les, I am very excited to chat with
1: today's guest. Oh man. This person is literally a superhero in the medical field. We just did an episode on superheroes. Yeah, we, we? I know. But this yeah. is
2: like a real life this superhero. Is a, oh, that was the comic book superheroes. This is real life superhero.
1: Yeah. She has a, one of the most important jobs in the Department of Defense.
2: And what they say in Boston is she's wicked smart. She wicked smart? Wicked smart. But, yeah. but you know, I
1: heard that she was the baddest woman in the Army.
2: That's what I've been told, too. Yeah. I've
1: been told, too. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome... Our guest today, Lieutenant General Talita Crossland. Talita, how are you doing today, ma'am?
3: Well, I'm a little intimidated to be here as a superhero and the baddest <laughs> woman in somewhere. Yeah. In the army. Yeah, in the army. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's actually kind of funny. My sister, um, when we were growing up, um, I was athletic as she wasn't, okay. and as we matured. They gave me a superhero name. <laughs> really?
2: Yeah, well you gotta share it. I'm not
3: sure I want to share that. You
2: gotta share it. You have <laughs> okay. to share it, man.
3: Well, I was She-Ra Princess of Power, right? <laughs> she <Shira, laughs> Yeah. yeah. I remember Power. Yeah, Princess I remember that. <laughs> we
1: so we don't plan it. this stuff to lead it. it just happens, okay? <laughs> so we That's just right. said it and then you just confirmed it. Thank you very wow. much.
2: And I and I just tweeted
1: it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's so okay.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and so your former boss who so you worked b- before before you became a three-star general yourself Scott Dingle referred you to as the baddest woman in the army in January 2023. So what do you think about that comment?
3: You know, actually uh, that's a good question. I think that comment says more about who Scotty Dingle is and was for Army Madison and how he just poured into people. How he he led, how he coached, and he was certainly a key mentor in my life. Uh, And if you actually looked at our bios, what you would see is Toledo Crossland riding back on the coattails of Scotty Dingell from the time I was a general officer. Uh, And so if I'm successful, a lot of that has to do with people like Scotty Dingell in my life who set the stage and and just poured into me.
1: Yeah. For our listeners, the, the Army Inspector General and the Surgeon General we're right across from each other. So you, you could come out and Dan, you know how we used to harass people in the hallway? Yeah. yeah. yeah they were yeah. right across the street. So I'd just say, hey, who are you?
2: Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry you had to do that, ma'am. You could probably get some VA compensation for no, having no. to <laughs> sit across from Les Smith. Yeah. I, yeah. I learned it from Dan,
1: I learned it from you, Dan. So Toledo, let's talk about your upbringing. You knew at an early age that you wanted to become a doctor. What drew you to that idea?
3: Probably since I was about five or six years old just something I gravitated to. I read a book as a kid. I never really wanted to be anything else in life but a physician. I actually wrote a poem about it when I was in second grade. And then about high school, as I was looking at colleges and thinking about what I needed to do to make that dream, if you will, become a reality, I had this conversation with my mom and my mom said to me, hey, do you really want to be a doctor? And I said, "Yeah, Mom, I do." She says, "Well, okay, because I really, really wanted a nurse in the family." <laughs> and she truly, truly in her heart meant that. You know, her, her family had a lot of nurses, and okay. if I was going to disappoint, she could she could roll with me going into medicine as a physician. Okay. And so I've, I've never wanted to do anything else in my life but be a physician.
2: Now wait, 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 wait one minute, ma'am. Do you remember any part of that poem and? Can you share it with us?
3: I want to be a doctor. Not a nurse, but a doctor. I want to be a doctor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's wow. cool. I it out
3: for a purpose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my yeah. gosh.
2: <laughs> Army nurses are not going to like that. That's uh,
3: yeah.
1: why. I, uh, <laughs> oh. uh,
3: <laughs> and so, therefore, I could remember it. It wasn't very complicated. Yeah, Roger right that.
1: Hey, oh look oh now. You were young, so it's all good. We'll give it the benefit of that.
2: Wow. <laughs> That's definitely going in the episode, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> definitely.
1: I love it. So, Talita, are you from New York?
3: Well, first, I'm from the real New York. Those of us that say we're from New York, are you from New York, New York? Or are you from upstate? So I was born in Brooklyn. Okay. But raised in Queens.
2: What's the best pizza place in Queens?
3: Oh, on Hillside Avenue, right by the Q4A bus stop.
1: Every New Yorker's got their
2: favorite yep, pizza yep. place.
3: It's right yeah. behind the bus stop.
1: Yeah. So help me here, Talita. You decided at the age of five that you want to become a doctor. And then you eventually decided that you want to start that path by going to West Point. How did you come up with that at such a young age?
3: (laughs) Yeah, the recruiter got me.
1: Okay, explain.
3: So the military was absolutely nowhere on my radar. And I took my preliminary SATs to go to college and whatnot. That little bubble where you say you release your scores. Yeah. And one of the first schools that reached out was the United States Military Academy, West Point. And all I knew was West Point was upstate.
1: Okay. In the country.
3: Yeah. They leaned in and then they they set up an interview. And at the interview was in my house, my parents around the table, my siblings, You want to talk about a bit of awkwardness and pressure? Uh, Because I got critiqued after the interview. They all gave me feedback. But my parents just thought this was brilliant. The recruiter said you could be a doctor, so check. It's world-class education, check. And you have a sister who will be in college at the same time as you are. So from my parents' perspective, check. And then I went up to West Point, and I was enamored, too.
1: So what, what got you? Was it the uniforms? Was it the buildings? What was it?
3: It was the team. It was all of the plebes. They just bonded. They were working together. They were doing stuff. They were, they were proud. Uh, they were focused. The education was good. I left them going, I could do this, and if not, I'll leave. That's literally what I thought. I'd just leave.
1: Did anyone in your family serve in the Army or in the military?
3: My dad's uncle was in the Air Force, but I didn't know that till I was in academy. Really? If you look at the era he was in, the African-American communities didn't necessarily see the military as of a way up. And to get something from it, if you will, that will advance the quality of your life, be part of a team, it's something, you know, they drafted into it. And so it wasn't something our family particularly embraced.
1: So what's your, your favorite moment of medical school? I don't know if that's a fair question to ask, but we'll ask it anyway.
3: Oh, wow. There were a lot of good moments. I think probably one of the first times we got to go see a patient at the bedside, I was still a first-year medical student, and I went to the Uniformed Services University in Bethesda. And right up the street is, then it was Naval Medical Hospital, but Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. And I went up there, and we would walk up with our black bags and, feeling very doctorishly, and I was at the bedside of a patient and I was doing an exam and I didn't have any tongue depressors in my black bag, but there were these things that looked like a popsicle stick, right? And so I said, okay, I'll just use that as a tongue breaker. And I took it out and the patient who had been in the hospital for a couple of days, she looked at me, she says, oh, you're gonna use the thing for steering stool. (laughs) And of course, I didn't know that.
1: <laughs> and the patient had to tell you. Uh, <laughs> at which
3: point I put the stick down and I went out the room and I got a a, pro, a proper tongue depressor oh and my came gosh. back. Uh,
1: that's that's pretty good. So teaches
3: you humility. <laughs> yeah, it does.
1: Yeah. And it's and it's also that you can laugh at yourself too. What was your most challenging moment at medical
3: school? Um, gosh. Um at the end of my second year my mom passed away from lung cancer. I didn't take much time off from school. Eustace was very accommodating and allowing me, and I was from New York, and I would go home on long weekends and so forth. And I did a rotation in internal medicine, taking care of pretty sick patients. And at one point, the preceptor was getting on me about a patient, and I just teared up. And he didn't understand that for me, that patient hit a cord because they were critically ill, like my mom had just been, and and it was a tough time. You know, how do you keep driving on and moving on with something significant happening in your life? How do you show up? How do you not fail? How she's not going to be there? But we got through that period with a lot of help from the team at UCS.
4: Join AUSA, the Army's premier professional association and host of the largest land power exposition in the United States. AUSA is open to everyone, including all ranks and components. So whether you have a relationship with the U.S. Army or simply want to honor those who serve, you can learn more at ausa.org join.
2: Welcome back to Army Matters. Now let's dive into your career a little bit. How do you think this experience of a physician in the Army differs from one of that in the civilian world?
3: You're right. I've had some, particularly during my training, I had opportunities to experience both both sets of system. In the military health system, there is that sense of purpose that can be uniformly driven across all services on why we exist and what we get to do and who we get to take care of. That is that is profoundly special. We do it with teammates and colleagues. And so I've moved more times than I can count, but every time I land, it's home, and the team is about the same things, and we have the same drivers and spirit. And then as a benefit, the actual benefit itself, you know, we don't discharge our patients back to homelessness. Mm -hmm. right? And some of my colleagues in the civilian sector actually have to do that. And so I'm also very grateful for being part of a system that our country values, that they resource such that we can take care of our 9.5 million beneficiaries, past and present.
2: Yeah. I was a lifelong recipient of medical care from the military, which is the finest care myself and my family ever received. And now I'm a, a dual citizen of medical care. I mean, I, I use some civilian, but I always want to go back to the medical treatment facility because of what you just explained. Could you describe what were some of the toughest moments and how did you overcome them throughout your 31-year career?
3: Yeah, I think my first crossroad for me was I finished my residency and I had in my mind what I wanted to do. hmm And then the army had in their mind (laughs) what I was going to do.
2: They're pretty good at telling you that too.
3: They are. (laughs) And I went kicking, screaming, crying, boo-hooing from Georgia, where I trained to Seoul, to Taegu, Korea. (laughs) And I ran a clinic and I learned so much. I look back on that time finally, but at the time, I, I felt like the army had wronged me. And so then they righted me. And they said, okay, where do you wanna go, Crossland? And I went to my next assignment at Fort McPherson. And it was my worst assignment in my entire 31 years.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how best assignment you ever had was your last one.
3: (laughs) Yes, and so that one was tough. The medicine wasn't what I wanted, da-da-da. And then that's when I learned that what the military really offers you is an enormous amount of opportunity. And, And so I said, you know, pick your head up, find a space where you can make a difference, and do it. I end up going back and getting a master's in public health. And that kind of put me on a trajectory of healthcare leadership. So out of that tough assignment came a change in thought process and a direction on what I could do if I worked hard at it.
2: Yeah. And that has seemed to serve you well. You haven't done half bad, I guess. No, we not, would say. not at all. Not half bad. Yeah. No. So you've had an amazing career full of guidance and leadership, and, and we're all blessed by that around us. And you are the director of DHA, which is a relatively, in military terms, a new organization that a lot of our listeners probably still don't fully understand or appreciate, I'll be honest, right? Could you tell our listeners, what is DHA and why was it created?
3: Yeah, I'll start with what DHA is. The Defense Health Agency is responsible for running the Department of Defense healthcare System for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and our retired beneficiaries. And I say, and, right, because it's all of it. I am mindful that the bulk of my career is focused on active duty, healthcare, keeping the force ready to deploy. And now as a director, my role is bigger for Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. That's all still part of it. And we have a tagline that's not just cute, it's real, for anytime, anywhere, always. And that always acknowledges our commitment to all 9.5 million beneficiaries, our retirees, their families, as well as our active duty and their families. Yeah. And it's an awesome mission. It truly is. Now, why was it created? It's funny. I think, I think it happened more than proactively, <laughs> right? So yeah. it's history. 2013, it was, hey, you know, Army, Navy, Air Force, you all have... IT, you all have pharmacies. So let's share some services. And then as many of us know, in 2017, there was a a significant seismic shift where the DHA's mission grew to run the healthcare system on behalf of the Department of Defense and in support of the services. And all the healthcare treatment facilities moved over to be administered by the Defense Health Agency.
2: So ma'am, how can the Army be a leader in medicine, not just in the services, but
1: in our society, in our nation. Well, can, can I rephrase the question? Yeah, sure. Can you talk about how the Army is a leader in the yeah. In medicine?
3: Yeah, yeah. And so um, I'm going to blur both things, right? Because obviously I'm, I'm in the joint space and having come from the Army and been shaped and mentored and coached and poured into, what you see is, is there's a bias to action in the Army, right? Uh, get comfortable with... I'm not going to have all the facts and let's move forward. And we saw that in the pandemic. And in doing so, I think we made a big difference on readiness. We demonstrated agility as new information would come in. We would learn to pivot and pivot pretty fast and pretty quickly, whether it was standing up the safe havens to receive Afghanis during a pandemic, whether it was moving resources across the various MTFs, whether it was partnering with the other services. I think what army medicine and military medicine has for the nation is is that when you focus on the mission and you prioritize what's best for the patients and you drive to that, you can affect change pretty dramatically, pretty quickly, and in a positive way if you're on the right trajectory.
2: So, ma'am, I'm going to wrap it up with one more last question. So, I was taught as a young man from my family that there's three most impactful professions in a human being's life that is, a teacher, a doctor, and a mother. And you are two of those. So we talked about you being a doctor. Could you tell us what it means to be a mother and a little bit about your son? And does he have any passion to serve?
3: When I was promoted to three star, I recognized that there was a lot of focus on that accomplishment, if you will. And I found it so imperative to remind Jackson that he is absolutely the most important thing. Um, the most significant role I have in this world is mother, is to raise a responsible, contributing, well-adjusted human being. And if I take out his behavior last night, for the most part, he does that. <laughs> uh, you know, he's 13. Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, he's going to be, uh, be 14 in April. He's a good kid. He's got a good heart, good spirit. He loves sports. He's athletic, but he's not driven. And I want to be a little more driven. And then I say to Jack, I said, you got to have a sense of purpose. And our biggest challenge in life is we lost my my husband about three years ago. And so, of course, I worry about Jackson and how that impacts him. But he seems to be doing OK. I'm extremely proud of my now. He's taller than me. I'm looking up. That was another milestone. <laughs>
2: how tall is he now?
3: <laughs> it's about five six. Wow. Dress-
2: At 13, that's that's he's a big boy. Yeah, yeah that's it's got a
3: size 11 men's shoe. And oh, yeah, lie.
2: it's coming. Yeah. Yeah, when I walk in
3: a house, my heart sinks and I look at those <laughs> shoe sizes and I go, that's my little boy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, ma'am. It's been an honor and privilege to be with you. I want to thank you for your incredible service, um, not only to our army, but to our soldiers and their family members. Um, my wife is with me today because of army medicine. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you all taking the time to, to talk today. Thank you.
0: Last October, I roamed the busy exhibit halls of AUSA's annual meeting and spoke with a number of attendees, many of whom gave shout-outs to members of the Army family that have made an impact on their lives. Here's one of them.
5: My name is uh, Lieutenant Colonel Andy Anderson. As a very young lieutenant, my first unit uh, was in El Paso, Texas at Fort Bliss. And my first battalion commander, Lieutenant Colonel Ed House, who is uh, now since retired uh, as a Fulbright, um, he was the model officer for me. He was physically fit. He was intelligent. He was articulate, and he was empowering. I do remember at one point we were at a run, and he was a very, incredible runner, and uh, I, I was kind of dogging it, as he would say. And he told me, uh, you know, Hey, junior! And he ran up to me as fast as he could, and he was. Uh, running alongside me and he said, is this the best you got? Come on, Junior. And then before you know it, I was gone, just whoosh. Again, he was right. I needed to push myself, no dogging it. You never have a day off. He was right there with me, pushing me on. And so throughout my entire career, I've always thought back at what would Colonel Ed House do? And that has never steered me wrong.
0: If you would like to give a shout out to someone in the Army family, leave us a voicemail at 703 236-2914 or email a voice note to podcast at AUSA.org
4: To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Army Matters is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army, the U.S. Army's professional association, member-supported Army Connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission, educate, inform, and connect with the Total Army, our industry partners, and supporters of a strong national defense. Today's episode was hosted by Lieutenant General retired Les Smith, and SMA retired Dan Dately, and anchor hosted by Carrie Viroheckes. Anthony Dale Call is the producer and writer, and Andy Bosnak is the supervising sound editor. Ellen Toner is the content editor. Linzenga Curry is the executive producer. And the senior producers are Carrie Viroheckes and LaSharon Duncan. Be sure to subscribe to Army Matters wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave a review. As you know, we love seeing stars in the Army, especially if it comes in the form of a five-star review. AUSA's Army Matters podcast can also be heard on Reese Across America Radio on Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern. On the iHeartRadio app, the Odyssey app, and the TuneIn app, with the search of the word Wreath. AUSA's Army Matters podcast primary purpose is to entertain. The podcast does not constitute advice or services. While guests are invited to listen, listeners, please note that you're not being provided professional advice from the podcast or the guest. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of AUSA. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. I'm with Sharon Duncan. Hope you have a great Army day. Hua.